Hello, I'm Angie Trevisono. Welcome to this podcast hosted by the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Queensland. Today we're discussing the health impacts of the Australian megafires. In September 2019, Australia began to burn like it's never burned before. Every state and territory, except Western Australia and the Northern Territory, went up in flames, with the megafires epicentre in the most populated state, New South Wales. So far, 33 people have died, an estimated 1.25 billion animals have been decimated, and nearly 11 million hectares of land have been burnt. It's now the summer of 2020, and the fires are still burning in southeast Australia as we face record temperatures, drought, our longest bushfire season on record, and thick air pollution that hangs in many places as a dark reminder of the inferno. It's understandable many Australians now feel intense grief, loss and fear for their future. Education and immediate action are our only hope if we are to improve our environment and chances of long-term survival. Here to help are four researchers from the University of Queensland School of Public Health. Associate Professor Linda Selvey is a public health physician who specialises in infectious disease. She's also a former director of the Communicable Diseases Branch within Queensland Health. Associate Professor Luke Nibbs studies and teaches on the health effects of environmental risks with a focus on air pollution and respiratory pathogens. Professor Amanda Lee is an expert in preventative health, nutrition, health and food policies and systems and Indigenous health. And Dr Fiona Charlson is a postdoctoral research fellow who specialises in global mental health. She also holds an affiliate position within the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington for her ongoing work on the global burden of disease studies. I'll start with you, Linda. The intense smoke pollution, which in some towns literally turned day to night, and the ash and toxic fire retardants that were dropped from planes over huge swathes of land, they now threaten our waterways, food sources, soil and own bodies. How will this affect people's health in the short term and long term? It's difficult to say how much impact that these fires, um, the ash and so on will have, uh, only time will tell. But we can expect that particularly the impacts on the waterways um, with the introduction of, of the potential toxins into the waterways, we're already seeing the impact of that on fish and other wildlife in, in rivers and waterways. The other impact on of the fires on our water systems have been the destruction of a, quite a bit of water infrastructure water treatment, which means that people don't necessarily have access to treated water in some areas. So how do the health impacts differ for rural and city populations? In terms of the impacts of the ash directly, the impacts would be greater in rural populations, particularly because it's in the rural areas where a lot of the water treatment infrastructure has been damaged. Um, and people there in rural areas are more directly impacted by the need to access water from more local sources. So what can we do about it? 
We definitely need to make sure that people are aware of the potential risks and to, as much as possible, try and access water that is not contaminated. And for people who no longer have access to treated water because of damage to the treatment plants need to ensure that they either boil their water or use some form of filter that will remove any microorganisms and hopefully any particle contaminants as well. Luke, how much carbon dioxide has been released into our atmosphere to date as a result of these bushfires, and will it continue to circle the globe for hundreds of years? A substantial amount, I'd say, yeah. Uh, Just by virtue of the the scale of the fires and the intensity of the burning, as well as the, the carbon dioxide, there's also all of the particulate pollutants, which is what has affected the visibility in such a pronounced way along the east coast. And uh, some of those can have a very long atmospheric lifetime as well. And in turn, they also contribute to uh, global warming also. Uh, It's hard to get a good handle on the the sorts of numbers about the volume of this release, but I'm sure in the fullness of time, people will, uh, will crunch the numbers. And I'm sure it's, number one, a lot bigger than what we're used to, even at this time of year. And uh, number two, we'll probably have quite a long legacy as far as the uh, downstream or, or longer term impacts of this big release of pollutants. And what makes it so dangerous? Air pollution affects now, we're, we're real recognising just about every organ system adversely. It affects some much more than others, and not everyone in the community is equally susceptible. Um, So a lot of people are are unaware and probably don't have any uh, noticeable ill health effects due to air pollution. But when we add up the disease burden, as we call it, at the population level, that's when we uh, recognise just how large that can be. So air pollution globally is the uh, fifth leading risk factor for death, but it flies below the radar, I think, a lot, particularly in countries like Australia, which normally have very good air quality. And it's only snapped into focus at times like this, uh, when it is so visible to the general population. But we know that in large parts of the world, uh, dealing with severe air pollution is just a day-to-day fact of life. When PM 2.5 levels reach a rating of 200 in Australia, the air we breathe is considered hazardous to human health, correct? Yes, I believe so. So since the start of the fires, places like Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra have had more hazardous days than clear days, and at times the PM 2.5 levels were in the thousands, and still people were outside walking, working, exercising, playing, including children. How is air quality information currently being communicated to Australians? So I think the state and territory environment and health departments are doing a very good job in in getting this message out there. And the fact that everyone or many people are now on social media, or if they're not on social media, they've at least got a mobile phone that can receive alerts has probably helped a lot as far as allowing people to either modify their behaviour, maybe reconsider the need to exercise or spend time indoors if they need to, especially if they're more vulnerable, so elderly people, pregnant women and and young children. So I think that the technology side has helped in the last few years, but we're just sort of treating, we're, we're taking these preventative actions but we don't really know how effective they're going to be. Mm. I think one thing we've realised is just how scarce, robust scientific evidence is on this topic. And why is that? 
and why isn't there a, a national approach to air quality information and what can we do about it? I think despite everyone's best intentions, uh, it's the kind of thing that can quickly fall off the radar in uh, favour of more pressing concerns when there aren't things like this happening. So it's only when the, uh, the general population gets so engaged with this topic, which is very unusual in Australia, particularly for this length of time, and that reflects the severity of this fire. I think that we need to really try and make the most of this interest. Governments clearly have, have seen that this is an issue for people, states, territories as well as federal government, and hopefully one of the the small silver linings of this devastating summer will be that we do get better information, uh, better scientific evidence and better ways of communicating it to people. Amanda, food security, what is it and why is it now under greater threat? Food security occurs when people at all times have access to the food that they need to maintain their health. In an Australia now with the bushfires, uh, agricultural areas are under threat both directly from the impact of horticultural areas burning, uh, rangelands burning, we've seen a loss of crops, we've seen a loss of animal such as uh, cattle and uh, sheep in this fire. But there's also indirect impacts on agriculture through things such as disrupted supply chains. For example, there's been real challenge in some areas getting enough fodder into animal farm areas, uh, particularly where they've already been subject to the impacts of long-term drought. So unfortunately in Australia now, there's threats to our food supply. Although there was a much smaller fire in Western Australia than experienced in Eastern Seaboard, there were examples of supermarkets in Western Australia, for example, actually running out of food, running out of fresh produce and milk during this um, period. I think it's testament to everybody's efforts along the Eastern Seaboard that we did see see a decrease in availability of some foods but supply chains were able to be repaired quite quickly. Some of that knowledge about how to do that came from experience in the Queensland floods for example in the 2010 year. Unfortunately now what is likely to happen is that there will be an impact on the availability of foods but also the accessibility of foods and we're already starting to see increased costs. Now this will impact fruit and vegetables but also milk products and meat products throughout our supply chain. So we're really concerned that the impact of this will be mostly on products that are healthy and we're reliant then on foods which have high shelf life which are usually the things with added sugar and salt and fat. We know Australians are already subject to high rates of chronic disease related to poor diet and that's likely to increase due to these impacts on food security, both in the short term but increasingly in the long term as we worry about the impact of the fires isn't over just this season. It's likely that we're going to have increased droughts and increased fires into the future. So we really need to tackle this issue as soon as possible. What can we do? 
know? Well, Australia is one of the few countries that lacks a food security policy and a nutrition policy. So the first thing would be to coordinate action and to ensure that evidence-based strategies and approaches are put into place. This both affects adaptation. We need to learn to, for example, rely more on frozen foods perhaps or canned products in remote areas where the fresh products aren't getting through. So there's some adaptation that can be done but it's not commonly understood that the food we eat actually affects our climate. For example, in terms of carbon footprint or biodiversity and water use. So we now need to start thinking about what we can do to improve our food supply so that people are eating more sustainably. And there's four key things that we can do with that. What are those four things we can do? The first thing that we can do is to reduce food and packaging waste. About a third of the food that we purchase is currently wasted in Australia. So clearly we can uh, save carbon footprint by consuming more of the foods that we eat. We need to also not over-consume food. So this helps with our obesity epidemic in Australia as well, but represents a waste too. The waste, not so much in that, to our garbage cans, but the waste around our waste. We need to think about waste, both sorts of wastes in our messaging. The third thing is really we need to avoid unhealthy junk food and highly processed foods. These foods currently contribute about 35% of our energy intake in Australia, yet they're not needed for health and they have the highest carbon footprint of most of the foods that we eat. The fourth thing we can do is reduce our reliance on animal products. So reducing intake of red meat particularly down to one to two serves a week, reducing reliance on animal products right through the system so that we have plant-based options. But they need to be healthy. I've already seen an increase in advertisement of unhealthy plant-based products. For example, there's been vegan ice creams advertised in the tennis. They need to be healthy plant-based options. So legumes are relying a lot on nuts and seeds as a replacement for animal protein will reduce our carbon footprint. Fiona, thousands of volunteer firefighters gave up their families and homes and risked their lives to fight these horrendous fires for up to 16 hours a day and for weeks and months at a time. While this happened, we had rolling media coverage with images that included whole communities huddled on beaches, desperately waiting to be carried to safety out to sea by Defence Force personnel. We saw terrified children wearing oxygen masks under blood red smoke filled skies as temperatures soared. We saw people in shock after losing everything they owned and nowhere to go. We saw tennis players collapsing with breathing problems caused by smoke pollution at the Australian Tennis Open. We saw thousands of fish floating dead in rivers. We saw countless heartbreaking images of wildlife including mammals, parrots and koalas burnt to a crisp. And we saw millions of hectares of green forests, including world heritage areas, turned into brittle black sticks against charcoal landscapes as the bushfires engulfed everything in their path. What are the short and long-term mental health impacts on children and adults 
after such an experience? In the, the range of your descriptions there and, and the images that have been available to every Australian, in fact, everyone in the world, demonstrates the huge range of ways that these bushfires have impacted people. I would be surprised, I would argue, that there is anyone that has been untouched by these bushfires, whether that's directly loss of home or being in a, in a fire-affected area or, or in a city or in another state quite removed from the actual affected areas. And this then sort of lends to a variety of different ways that people are impacted in terms of their mental health. So you've talked about the firefighters and the first responders there, and we have a long history of trauma-related mental illness, which will inevitably unfold in the coming months with first responders and also people who have, you know, for example, been trying to save their own home, children who have been stranded on a, on a beach or are waiting to be rescued. So there's these trauma-related mental health impacts which will unfold and it's quite a normal, it's important to also remember, it's quite a normal to, ha normal to have an acute stress reaction. That's not a mental illness. But then if that persists for a month is the clinical definition after the event, then we are sort of looking at a longer term mental health problem with these populations. Then there's the smoke, which, as you described, has impacted people such as tennis players. But everybody who's been in those areas with really thick smoke, they've either had health issues, as Luke described, or they've been told to stay indoors. There's been a number of community events cancelled. There has been day-to-day -day activities have been disrupted. And over a prolonged period, that has impacts on mental health. Not being able to access green spaces has an impact on population mental health. What are the compound effects on people who don't have food, shelter, safety, mm -hmm. income, and emotional support for an extended period? Links between these sort of disasters and, and catastrophic events and mental health is quite complex. It's not a linear relationship as it might be, such as smoke and respiratory illness, for example. So the, the pathways are quite complex and there is a number of factors involved and they do compound each other. Some of the research that we need to do is to really understand in this context, it's been research done in other contexts, but in this context, what are those main triggering factors that are, are leading to poor mental health outcomes to address those. Things that have been shown in other contexts such as loss of income, socioeconomic status, whether that's um, long-term or as a result of the bushfires, lack of food security, lack of spaces for children to play, perhaps interrupted education, all of these sort of factors that uh, populations are being disadvantaged with at the moment have been shown in other contexts to impact on mental health. So how does this affect the national psyche? In a number of ways again, so we, I've sort of discussed some of the direct impacts, but there's a lot of indirect impacts. There's this um, term eco-anxiety which has been used to describe this sort of um, existential fear 
of what is happening to environmentally and particularly with climate change which again needs a lot of research. It's not well understood in terms of how many people but clinically from clinicians that I um, have as colleagues this is turning up in, in the rooms of psychiatrists and psychologists. So it is real and it is almost certainly quite significant amongst the general population whether people have been directly impacted or not. What can we do to help ourselves and others? Some of these might seem quite obvious. There might be things that we're doing already, but they're really sort of centred around connecting with community, connecting with family and other people, discussing what's going on and how you feel about it. So that sort of connecting with people is one clear strategy. The other one is building our innate resilience. Most people by nature are very resilient people, but some people have struggles with that. And there are strategies which I won't go into detail here, but there's a number of strategies which people can either undertake themselves or they might need to seek professional health from a psychologist or, or psychiatrist if they are finding that they're just not coping on their own. Linda, you've previously worked as the CEO of Greenpeace Australia Pacific. How will these fires affect our environment moving forward? The impacts of the fires on our environment are quite drastic, unfortunately. That's because the fires have decimated a large numbers of our forests and our natural areas. There have been, as you had previously mentioned, a large number of our iconic wildlife killed and, and burnt from the fires. What hasn't been described as often is the impact on the less iconic but critical wildlife and plants and animals that we rely on to for our ecosystems, such things as insects, spiders, some small mammals and reptiles and amphibians often don't get mentioned but are critical to the survival of other species and, and indeed ultimately to our own survival. So what this means is that any remaining unburnt areas need to be protected from further clearing and forestry activities because we know that both of those things can increase the risk of fires into the future and we also need to preserve them to provide refuges for our threatened species. What is the likelihood that we'll see a rise in new infectious diseases and what types? I don't think that's. it's highly likely that we would expect to see new infectious diseases as a result of the fires. But when we have seen infectious diseases arising from, from native wildlife moving into humans' populations, that's usually occurred as a result of habitat destruction or encroachment of urban areas into habitats of, of these animals. So the classic Australian example is the Hendra virus, which occurred when a f flying foxes infected horses that then mediated the infection or amplified it uh, for human infection. And the movement of Hendra virus from flying foxes into humans occurred, scientists believe, as a result of land clearing, so the loss of habitat for the flying foxes, meaning that the flying foxes were moving into urban areas in order to survive. There's similar examples with Nipah virus in Asia 
and indeed even Ebola virus is likely to have been in some instances triggered by the similar ecological changes. So I guess it's possible with the extensive fires that that may also result in some of that movement. It's generally the more mobile species that pose that risk. That's why often it, flying foxes and other bat species are implicated because they can actually move as opposed to the other species that aren't so mobile and therefore when land clearing forest destruction happens they die. What can we do to remain safe and healthy as the fires continue to burn, our planet continues to heat up and our land continues to dry out? We need to adapt basically to the impacts of the climate crisis. There are things that individuals can do, but the most important things are the collective actions. The collective actions need to involve our governments, our local Uh, state and federal governments so that we can both plan for our changes that need to happen in terms of our infrastructure, our disaster response planning and our health responses. At an individual level I think the important thing that we need to do is to advocate and, and strongly call for these adaptations to occur. The planning needs to be informed by assessments of of the vulnerabilities of different communities, which will vary because the climate impacts are different from place to place. So that work needs to happen. Australia is behind the eight ball in terms of conducting these assessments that have been done in many countries around the world. So that needs to happen so that then all agencies together, not just health agencies and community members can get together to plan and how to adapt. And because there are expected climate impacts and then there's the unexpected. So for example, even though climate scientists predicted these widespread catastrophic fires as long as 40 years ago, exactly when they might happen and the extent of it are unexpected. So we need to also be able to plan to be able to respond to the unexpected events, not just fires, but other climate-related extreme events. Amanda, the Australian government, led by Prime Minister Scott Morrison, has promised at least $2 billion for bushfire recovery. So far, $367 million has been set aside for areas like mental health, primary producers, financial counselling, young people, charities and local governments. Around $1.6 billion still remains unallocated. Where would you like to see that money spent? I think it's very clear that we need to be doing a lot more planning around future events. Linda has talked about some of the ways that we can be better prepared to adapt to what are likely to be ongoing devastating scenarios in our community. But Australia also needs to step up and show leadership around mitigation. So Australia contributes less than 2% of carbon footprint to the world, but per capita we're one of the biggest producers of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases, showing leadership there by introducing policies that will increase our reliance on sustainable energy sources and have less impact on our environment is going to be really critical. Is there any any other further research you'd like to see? 
Well, one of the problems is that at the moment it's clear that we just don't have enough data on these unexpected events. We know, as Linda has said, that these catastrophes are going to occur, but we don't quite know when. For example, in my area of nutrition, we don't have data about prices of foods around Australia that we can use as benchmarking to be able to identify the likely impacts of the increasing costs of, uh, of foods. One of the things that we know is that humans will be impacted. So in terms of health planning, there's a real need to be more strategic in thinking about how we can respond to each strand of the health impacts that we've heard about today from air pollution to mental health and beyond. So planning and coordination is really key and that's expensive We need to have developed strategies that are based on scientific evidence. In scientific papers, it's clear what we need to do. What appears to be missing is political and public will to do that. And I think that these events can help consolidate change and highlight the urgency of action. I'd like to wrap this up by asking you individually if there's one take-home message for people who are listening now, especially Australians, what would it be, given what we've experienced and continue to experience with our climate and environment? I'll start with you, Luke. I think we need to start moving towards treating the causes rather than the symptoms. I think we've realised we've got a lot of gaps in our knowledge of how to treat the symptoms when these events happen. But as well as that, uh, the only way to really give ourselves the best possible chance of minimising the likelihood or reducing the severity of future impacts is to get serious about addressing global warming and the co-benefits that we'll get from that in terms of things like reduced levels of air pollution, because a lot of the major sources of greenhouse gases are also big sources of particles and other air pollutants. I think that's something we need to get better at highlighting to the general public that you get this multi-dimensional benefits by treating those causes, as as I call them. And I agree with, with everything else that's been mentioned already as far as suggestions as well. Fiona? Okay, I'm going to be a a bit greedy and and, and make two points. One, because I worry about the mental health of of Australians after this bushfire crisis. And I would really like to encourage people to look after their mental health. And if that means getting professional help, then to not be ashamed of that, to put stigma aside and really look after themselves. The second thing I'd like to say is kind of echoing what Luke has just said, and that if we are serious about this, this has cost our country in so many ways, social and economically, it has cost us immeasurable amounts of of pain and productivity. If we are to get serious about this, we need to tackle mitigation. That is the only way to prevent these or reduce the, the impact and the occurrence of these events. We cannot continue business as usual. That for me is the absolute fundamental take home message. Amanda? You know, this was a warning. It's a devastating warning, but we need to learn from what has occurred and understand that we need to advocate and take urgent action 
put differences aside and work together collectively to save our planet and our own health. And Linda? I think we need to remember that biodiversity and nature are important for human or critical for human survival. So what we do to protect them is also about our own survival. And I'd also echo the calls of my colleagues for urgent mitigation efforts, both in Australia and globally. I think that Australia, rather than thinking about helping to send people to Mars, could potentially invest those funds in greater scientific achievements in the mitigation area and also in drawdown because it's clear that the amount of carbon dioxide we already have in our atmosphere is devastating for our planet. Thank you to our guests, Associate Professor Linda Selvey, Associate Professor Luke Nibbs, Professor Amanda Lee and Dr Fiona Charlson. And thank you for listening. I'm Angie Trivisono and this podcast has been hosted by the University of Queensland's Faculty of Medicine and School of Public Health.